Welcome to the Standing Up to Pots podcast, otherwise known as the Potscast. This podcast is dedicated to educating and empowering the community about postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, commonly referred to as POTS. This invisible illness impacts millions and we are committed to explaining the basics, raising awareness, exploring the research, and empowering patients to not only survive, but thrive. This is the Standing Up to POTS podcast. Hello, fellow POTS patients and super people who care about POTS patients. I'm Jill Brooke, your hyperadrenergic host, and today we are discussing gut motility and gastrointestinal issues in POTS with a most fabulous physician and researcher. Our guest today is Dr. Linda Wynn, a gastroenterologist and motility specialist at Stanford University. In addition to seeing patients, she has also authored so many peer-reviewed medical articles that I gave up counting them. She has a special interest in a lot of topics that POTS and dysautonomia patients care about, such as gastroparesis, chronic nausea, cyclic vomiting, irritable bowel syndrome, autonomic dysfunction, the overlap with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and myalgic encephalomyelitis, and brain-gut disorders. And she has a reputation for not only being brilliant, but also really getting it that complex chronic disorders can interact with GI issues and greatly affect quality of life. Dr. Wynn has also recently published a new article about gut motility in POTS, which we'll discuss today. Dr. Wynn, thank you so much for joining us today. Jill, thank you for having me and for all those kind words. Well... Okay, so as a GI specialist, I am wondering, how many POTS patients do you really see? Like, does GI come up often in POTS? And what kind of GI symptoms do you tend to see in the POTS patients? Yeah, so I see a lot of patients with POTS. And I don't know if that's just because it's now my referral practice and people seek me out because they know I take care of patients with POTS. That being said, up to 80% of patients with POTS will have some type of gastrointestinal manifestation. Nausea is the most common one. It's followed by vomiting, abdominal pain, and then the constipation, diarrhea. Okay. And I guess we'll get to this in a minute, but do you actually have things you can do for people who have those issues? Because we hear about that a lot, right? And, and I guess... Patients get used to thinking they just have to live with nausea forever. There's definitely things that we can do. There's no magic cure. There's no magic bullet, as you all know. And most of what we do is, one, you know, address the predominant symptoms. So what's bothering you? The, which of all those constellation symptoms is bothering you the most? Because it's generally not just nausea or it's not just abdominal pain. It's multiple symptoms. And so we can try to address them one at a time because you can't address everything all at once because if you start too many medications at once, you don't know what's doing what. So I typically start with the most prominent symptom that's affecting someone's quality of life, but also looking at the physiology and trying to address the physiology. For example, patients with nausea can either have rapid gastric emptying, slow gastric emptying, or normal gastric emptying. Exact same symptoms, three different physiologies. And so 
If someone has nausea with rapid gastric emptying, I choose a different treatment as opposed to someone with nausea and slow gastric emptying. So that is so interesting. And I guess I'm excited to have you educate us a little bit about GI motility. And I guess before we get into all the different ways that POTS patients can have messed up GI motility, can you just give us a primer on GI motility? Like, what is it supposed to look like? Well, one, if your GI tract is working normally, once you're done chewing and swallowing, everything takes care of itself and you should not be aware of anything other than the urge to have a bowel movement, sit on the toilet, evacuate, and be done. So the process of eating and pooping should be automatic and you're not really thinking about it. So that's normal GI physiology. The entire digestive process is controlled by nerves and hormones. And so there are nerves within the GI tract, so the enteric nervous system or the second brain, but also the autonomic nervous system, which is why you can see how POTS can affect the GI tract because POTS is within that spectrum of autonomic dysfunction or autonomic dysregulation. Can I ask what might be a silly question? Is the enteric nervous system outside of the autonomic nervous system? And the enteric nervous system is essentially it in of itself. So actually, if you take the colon out of the body and you put it into a bath, you'll see the contractions. It'll contract without any input from the brain or the autonomic nervous system because that's the enteric nervous system that's functioning. Oh, that kind of blows my mind. Interesting. Okay. So can I ask, so once someone, for example, like takes a bite of an apple and chews it up, how long is it supposed to take normally until that gets pooped out? And where is it spending most of its time, like in the stomach or the small intestine or colon? Well, I don't know the exact time of an apple, but most of the studies on Gastric emptying has been looked at using a standardized meal of like egg beaters, bread, jam, and water. And so we know how long it takes for that to empty because how long it takes to digest something really depends on the content of the food. So the caloric content, as well as whether it's a fat, protein, carbohydrate, or a fiber. So an apple with the skin on it actually takes longer to digest than a peeled apple. Okay. Um, It's more complex. So that meal there that I mentioned earlier, minus the apple, if you had normal digestion at the end of four hours, then most of that food should be gone. At the end of two hours, more than half should, should be gone. The number that we use there is what we call the 60% retention. So at two hours, about 60% is still left in the stomach. By four hours, less than 10%. It should be less in the stomach. And so that's how we decide if someone has slow gastric emptying. If at the end of four hours, you have more than 10% in the stomach. Okay, perfect. So... Do you mind explaining what happens after the time in the stomach 
and what the time and transit looks like then? Yeah, so after the stomach, then in the small bowel, it can take anywhere from two to six hours for things to move through the small intestine. Anything over six hours is considered slow for motility. And then in the colon, it can take up to 59 hours for things to move through the colon and exit. And, and in, in patients where the stools or whatever is in the colon for more than 59 hours, then it's considered slow. Okay. And so it's a little bit interesting to me that in POTS, it seems like it can get messed up in either direction. Do you mind talking more about that, the fast or the slow motility? Yeah, in part because the stomach, which is sort of the part that we think about the fast motility on with nausea, when you eat, the upper part of your stomach is supposed to relax to make room for food, right? So for Thanksgiving, if you eat the appetizer, the turkey, and the second pumpkin pie, the stomach is relaxing so you can fit all of that. That relaxation of the stomach is under vagal control. So if the stomach does not relax appropriately, then you can get fast and empty. Then in terms of the slow emptying, there's the stomach that it contracts to grind the food down to particles that are less than two millimeters before it goes into the small bowel. And so if there is a problem where the stomach isn't contracting appropriately, then it can take a long time to break the food down into small particles. And then it gets into the duodenum or the small intestine. And if the motility or the contractions of the small intestine are disorganized or disordered, it can cause sort of a backflow. So it's not just the stomach. It's like the upper stomach, the lower stomach, the valve of the stomach, the small bowel. Any of those areas can be disordered. Why one over the other? We don't know that. Why do some people with POTS have fast emptying and others have slow emptying? We don't know. Okay. And can I ask what happens if the food sits too long? So if the slow motility is the problem and the food sits there too long, sometimes you hear people talk about, oh, the food starts to rot in your system. Is that a myth or can that actually happen? Like do secondary problems happen from the food sitting there too long? I mean, it doesn't necessarily rot in terms of getting mold or <laughs> like rotting food in your refrigerator. That doesn't happen. But what happens is, let's say the food isn't digesting and let's say you belch, right? It, it, you belch and some of that food may come back up and you're tasting the acidity of the food. Or if you don't and there's food there and you go to eat the next meal, there's less room in your stomach. So you feel full more easily. So having food sitting in your stomach causes fullness, that bloating feeling. It can cause nausea, vomiting. And then the next meal is more difficult to eat. So you and your team recently did a whole study on POTS GI motility, and you had some kind of cool technology. Do you mind talking a little bit about what you did in that study? Yeah, so it was a retrospective study, 
And these are patients who were having a number of GI symptoms and most commonly nausea, vomiting, and or constipation. And what we did was a test called a smart pill, which is this capsule that you swallow and it measures pressure, temperature, and pH. And based on those three parameters, I can tell you how long it's been in the stomach, the small bowel, and the colon. So you can track as it's moving through the gut. And there are normal values. And so what we did was we took patients who had the smart pill study done, as well as autonomic testing. And then we looked at those with and without pods on the autonomic testing. So we didn't rely on the history of POTS or not, we wanted to look at patients who actually had autonomic testing that confirmed that they had POTS. And so then we went back and kind of compared the two groups in terms of age, race, symptoms, diagnoses, and then looked at the transit times of how long it took for the capsule to go up through the system. And what we found, it wasn't surprising was that our patients with POTS tended to be younger than patients without POTS. The symptom characteristics were the same. So again, both groups had nausea and vomiting. But when we looked at the transit time, it was not so much the stomach that was different, it was a small bowel. So about a quarter of patients with POTS had slower transit through the small bowel, which can cause nausea, bloating. Slow small bowel transit also increases the risk of developing something called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO, which is bacteria that is normally present in the gut, but because of the slow motility, it stagnates and it it builds in the small bowel and and that can cause additional symptoms. So Is what you're talking about with the slow motility in the small bowel or in the small intestine, is that different than gastroparesis? Does gastroparesis specifically refer to what's going on in the stomach? Is this a separate problem? Yeah. Yeah, So gastroparesis is specifically stomach. If the small bowel is slow, we generally call it chronic intestinal pseudo obstruction. It's not the most accurate clinical description of it in that historically that diagnosis of chronic intestinal pseudo obstruction is more along the lines of patients having symptoms like a mechanical bowel obstruction and the small bowel is dilated and you can see it on imaging like CT scan or x-ray, but there's no mechanical blockage. In these patients, the bowel isn't dilated They don't have those obstructed symptoms, but things are moving more slowly. So more of like a small bowel dysmotility. And then when it gets to the colon, does it get more normal again? In our study, we had patients with slow colonic motility, but there was no difference between the POTS and the non-POTS patients. So about... A third of patients had slow colonic motility, but that was not different than the non-POTS population. Oh, so that is that just more common in the general population? So POTS patients don't stand out on that? 
Well, it's not necessarily that it's more common in the general population. Constipation is common and we're testing a group of patients with symptoms of constipation. Mm-hmm. So we're not necessarily looking at, you know, healthy volunteers with no GI symptoms that we're comparing with. We're comparing with a group of patients who also have nausea, vomiting, and constipation. Okay, so this all starts to sound pretty complex because people can either have their motility be too fast or too slow. It could be in their stomach or it could be in their small bowel or even in their colon. What kinds of treatments exist to help people? Yeah, well, it goes back to the symptoms and is it too fast, too slow or normal? And stepping back a little bit, especially with the nausea, Sometimes the nausea actually doesn't even come from the stomach. It can be coming from the brain. So if you think about nausea, for example, in patients who are getting chemotherapy, right? The chemotherapy is not affecting the stomach. The chemotherapy is triggering the nausea center in the brain. For people who have motion sickness and get nausea, there's no problem with the stomach, right? Is the vestibular systems in the ear that's causing the nausea. Just because someone has nausea, it doesn't mean it's coming from the stomach. It could be coming from the ear or the brain. And so it helps to try to tease out like what's causing the nausea. So in patients with POTS who tell me that every time I stand up, I get nauseous. Then I started thinking that maybe it's the pots that's the issue, not necessarily the stomach. Then you treat the pots. But let's say somebody has tachycardia and they have slow stomach emptying and the nausea is after eating. Then I may use something like critostigmine or mestinon, which I'm sure you're all aware of, helps to treat the pots symptoms and the tachycardia, but it also accelerates mortality. So you get a two for one with that. Smart. And so the other things that I would use is that if someone say has nausea, fullness, but their stomach emptying is fast because the upper part of the stomach is not relaxing, I'll use a medication called Usperone. It's an anti-anxiety medication, but it helps with relaxation of the stomach. So that can help with the nausea, the symptoms. And we know that the brain and the gut are interconnected. It's not to say that anxiety is the cause of the symptoms, but when you stand up and you're tachycardic and you're dizzy and you're feeling nauseous, it's normal over time to develop anxiety, which worsens the GI symptoms. Because what happens is we know that anxiety increases your sympathetic activity, mm-hmm. so especially if you have hyperagenergic thoughts, it increases that mm-hmm. activity and it, it can further alter GI physiology as well as sensation. So it can lower the threshold for fullness and nausea. Mm-hmm. So the buspirone helps to relax the stomach, but it can also help treat the anxiety, which Again, it's a two for one that you help decrease the symptoms that are associated with POTS, with chronic illness, but also in, in improve the nausea. 
Okay. Oh, that's great. And so it sounds like there can be so many root causes. You had talked about how a hyperadrenergic state can make digestion worse, but then you also mentioned the vagus nerve. And then I think you also, I don't know if general neuropathy is similar to the vagus nerve angle or if that can be its own separate cause. I guess when we think about POTS, we think about sort of almost this tangled web of, of threads and we don't completely understand all of them, but we know that there is some angle of sympathetic state and some angle of hypovolemia and some angle of neuropathy or big old nerve tone. And do any of those seem like stronger influences on GI symptoms to you? Or does it seem like it's all just like a giant mess of everything? It's a giant mess of everything. <laughs> yes. We try our best to tease it out. And as a gastroenterologist, I'll try to explain how I think of the autonomic nervous system as opposed to a neurologist's view of the autonomic nervous system. So it's a very simplistic view to start with. And so I think of the autonomic nervous system in terms of the sympathetic and parasympathetic, parasympathetic being being the vagus. So it's like a seesaw, right? I don't think of it as general neuropathy of the autonomic nervous system, but I think about it more in terms of the imbalance of it. So the sympathetic nervous system, when you're under stress, like when you're being chased by a bear, it revs up. It's supposed to, to rev up. So having an increased sympathetic system is not a bad thing, especially when you're being chased by a bear, uh, but it's supposed to come, come down. When you eat, so rest and digest is when your parasympathetic nervous system comes up and it comes down. So when you have the sympathetic nervous system way up high here, like in hyperadrenergic pods, chronic stress, chronic anxiety. And when I say chronic stress, it's both physical and emotional chronic stress and the additive effects of stress. Then if you think about the parasympathetic nervous system when you're resting or when you're eating, it has to work a lot harder to get up because the sympathetic nervous system is starting up high than, than it's supposed to be. So that's kind of how I think of the autonomic dysregulation and how that can affect the GI tract. In terms of when you think of more like a neuropathy, just like the muscles in our hands and feet, there's the motor component. So the nerves that work for the muscles to contract and to move things. So the gut has the motor nerves, but also has the sensory nerves. So when you touch something, it tells you if it's hot, cold, sharp, dull in your stomach. It tells you if you've eaten, eaten something spicy, cold, hot, tells you when you're supposed to be full. So there's the sensory component of your digestive system. So in patients with POMs, especially if there's a small fiber neuropathy component to it, then it may not be just the motor part that's affected, the sensory part can be affected so that you may eat a cracker and it feels like you've ate an entire Thanksgiving dinner because you have like a sensory neuropathy 
of your stomach. Kind of like with diabetes, where you get a peripheral neuropathy and someone puts a sheet on your hand and it feels like it, it's the most painful thing in the world. That same thing can occur in the stomach. They eat a cracker and it felt like you just ate a whole buffet. Oh, that's so interesting. Wow. So I know in your biography, it mentions an interest in overlaps with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and chronic fatigue syndrome, myalgic encephalomyelitis. In your patient population, do they tend to have similar problems to the people who have only POTS? Or when they have those in addition to POTS, do you see different symptoms or different problems? Yeah, well, the reason I've become interested is really more because I was seeing patients with POTS and EDS and MECFS, and I was trying to figure out why I was seeing all, all these patients with similar overlapping conditions. And why that's the case, I think there's a lot of research that needs to be done to figure out what the underlying pathophysiology or the mechanism is. I suspect it's sort of the a neuroimmune dysregulation. So the nervous system, the immune system somehow being dysregulated and causing brain fog, fatigue, POTS, GI dysmortility. What that is, is way beyond my realm of <laughs> expertise and research. But just because we don't know the cause and the triggers, that doesn't mean that we can't help patients. I'm oftentimes very upfront with patients. If I don't know the answer to something, I'll say, I don't know the answer. I don't know why this is happening, but I believe you. I'm going to try to help you to the best I can. But where the science is right now, I don't have the answer. As opposed to saying, it must be you because I don't know the answer. <laughs> right. And that's so huge right there. <laughs> it's not me. It's you. Well, we so appreciate physicians like you. And can I ask, did you learn this in medical school? Was this your area of research? Or how come it seems like there are so few gastroenterologists who know about this area? You mean of POTS or of the neuro-GI motility part of it? Well, I was going to say POTS and Ehlers-Danlos and MECFS, and it, it seems like you've put some puzzle pieces together that I've never really heard very many other GI specialists talk about. Yeah. So one, I definitely did not learn this in medical school, nor did I learn it in my residency or GI training. So I did train in GI mortality and physiology. And so when I came into practice, I was seeing patients with motility disorders and disorders of brain-gut interaction. At that time, we were calling it functional GI disorders. But when I came to Stanford, this was back in 2008, we have a POTS clinic. We had an MECFS clinic and I had my GI clinic and I would get referrals. And I started to notice that it was the same team of doctors taking care of a lot of patients with similar problems because of this. And I wasn't trained in this, but I needed to learn what was going on. 
So I learned from the POTS doctors. I learned from the MECFS doctors. And every time I refer a patient to a specialist and they send the report back to me, I would read it and then go up and look up something. And I'm fortunate here because we do have multidisciplinary case conference that we do once a month with our autonomic neurology group. So in our multidisciplinary conferences, we either discuss topics just in general, but most recently we talked about autoimmune gastrointestinal dysmotility, how to diagnose it, when to think about it, and what are the treatment options. And then we also talk about patients who we share that may be puzzling more complicated than the usual complexity of patients with POTS and GI dysmotility. Oh, well, I'm so happy that Stanford is embracing the complexity. That is great because I don't know that there's that many places that are doing that. I guess as we finish up, are there any other final thoughts you have for patients trying to get help from their doctors? Like, for example, is there anything that helps you help them? If patients come to you and maybe they have kept, I don't know, tabs on their diet or their pooping habits, or is there anything that makes it easier for you to help them? One, what helps is what are your goals for coming to see me? Whether it's, I want to know the diagnosis or what's going on, or I don't, care what the physiology is. I just want to feel better. And it's the nausea that is bothering me. And the reason I say that is that everyone who comes to see me has different goals that they want to achieve. Mm -hmm. So the best way for me to help you is to know what your goals are coming in. I actually love it when patients have a summary of their medical history. Not necessarily everything that you've eaten in your pooping diary. That that doesn't really help. To, okay. <laughs> but if you were healthy until the age of 25, when you got food poisoning, and then all of a sudden things change, then that's something that is helpful. And then with the symptoms, like what makes it better, what makes it worse, and of those symptoms, which ones are the most bothersome? A summary of what testing that you've had done, what medications or what things you've tried and what happened with it. Did it work? Did it not work? Or did it work, but you just had such severe side effects that it just wasn't worth taking? So all those things are helpful. And then other things that, that play a role in the symptoms is that patients with POTS often have other Issues like migraine headaches, fibromyalgia, disordered sleep are probably the three most common things that I see. And so if you don't have someone who's helping to take care of those issues, it'll also affect the GI tract because that's part of that chronic stress and the increased sympathetic activity. It's not stress because something bad happened at home stress, but this is the physical stress that is mm-hmm. okay great that's great information because i know that's lots of patients they wait so long to get in to see someone like you and they really want to make the most of it so that's so helpful 
Well, Dr. Wynn, thank you so much for your time today. I know you need to get back to the clinic, but we're so grateful for your ongoing work to help POTS patients in the clinic and through your research and with your whole team. So please thank all of your co-authors and team for us as well. We're really excited to have people of your caliber looking into our issues. You're very welcome. And like I said, we're here, we're learning, and I hope one day that we will have more answers. And I would have to say that there is hope there compared to where things were 15 years ago. I do think there's more awareness more people are looking into this. So there is hope. And I wanted to make sure that I extended that hope. Wonderful. Well, thanks for all your good work. And hey, listeners, that's all for now. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll be back with more next week. But until then, thank you for listening. Remember, you're not alone. And please join us again soon. As a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast is not medical advice. Consult your healthcare team about what's right for you. This show is a production of Standing Up to Pots, which is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. You can send us feedback or make a tax deductible donation at www.standinguptopots.org. You can also engage with us on social media at the handle Standing Up to Pots. If you like what you heard today, please consider subscribing to our podcast and sharing it with your friends and family. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thepotscast.com. Thanks for listening.